Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoy today's message. Hi there, and welcome back to our video session, Two Crowns, as we wrestle with finding God in a world affected by COVID-19. Now, this is session two, so if you haven't gone through session one yet, please do so first. Because in it, we touched upon this idea that it does seem that the whole world is currently ruled by, in a sense, this one crown of the coronavirus in our emotions, in our thoughts about the future, in our fears. But we said that maybe in this historical person, Jesus of Nazareth, who claimed to be God, come in human form to suffer with and for us, the one who wore the other crown, the crown of thorns, of suffering, Maybe in him, even in this season, we can find something of the way, the truth, and the life. Now, of course, when life is simple and uncomplicated, it's easy to put off these big questions, or at least take very simplistic answers for them. But can we be honest? This is not a moment like that for any of us. Regardless of our beliefs, this is a unique moment. So, the biggest Bible app in the world just recently released their 2020 most shared verses over Easter time. That's when Christians celebrate the resurrection of Jesus. And a verse that had never featured before popped into this conversation. It's Psalm 30 verse 5, speaking of God, and it says, For His anger lasts only a moment, but His favor a lifetime. Weeping may stay overnight, but there is joy in the morning. You see these themes of anger, favor, weeping, joy. Similarly, many publishers globally have said that the sales of Bibles have spiked dramatically during this pandemic. So I think it's safe to say that many people are asking questions of God. Is He real? Is He there? Is He in control? Is He good? What then about evil? So a couple of years ago, the Bana Research Group, they did a poll where they asked people, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? And by far the most common response was, why is there such evil and suffering in the world? So I want us to dive into that question today. Now, quick disclaimer, of course, we are not going to arrogantly solve the problem today like you would a mathematical problem. I would rather suggest that we are going to wade into a mystery that has for millennia kept the most brightest minds in all of the world up at night. So yes, this will be a small drop in a great ocean. And secondly, the nature of this conversation will raise a couple of uncomfortable and unsettling issues. So just please be aware of that. I'll never forget a couple of years ago when issues once again of this nature just rocked me to the very depth of my soul. The newspapers broke the story of a caretaker who was caught on video basically torturing the young child put in her care. That video, for me as a young father at that stage, it rocked me emotionally for weeks. I kept asking this question in my own heart. Why would a God allow something like this to happen? How can I believe in God if he would allow something like this to happen? And in a similar way, my wife and I once had to attend the funeral of a family's young 
two-year-old son who, who died tragically drowning in a pool. And I'll never forget that the whole atmosphere of this funeral had this question in the air, why God? So the philosopher Ronald Nash, I think he summarizes it by saying that every philosopher that I know believes that the most serious challenge to theism was, is, and will continue to be the problem of evil. It's the ultimate card that you can play in the conversation regarding the existence and the nature of God. So what then is it about COVID-19 that raises these issues in our hearts of it being evil and unjust? The American philosopher Peter Hare says that evil comes mainly in two forms. We get moral evil and we get natural evil. So moral evil is of human Origin. This is moral wrongdoing, such as lying, cheating, stealing, torturing, murdering, and character defects like greed, deceit, cruelty, cowardice, and selfishness. Natural evil is caused by nature. So this is the pain and suffering caused by events like fires, floods, landslides, hurricanes, earthquakes, and famines, and by diseases like cancer or leprosy. Interestingly enough, I think that the COVID-19 pandemic is actually a combination of both. Because you see, coronaviruses are a family of viruses that mainly affect animals. But a couple of them, including COVID-19, have made the jump to humans. So there's natural origin here. But how it made this jump and how it spread so rapidly, there is a lot of moral human decision-making taking place in that. Because as has been noted now by many people, the wet market in Wuhan, China, where it seems that the virus originated from, it's here where the decision of people to bring animals from all these different ecosystems, both dead and alive, together and put them in excruciatingly bad circumstances close to each other, it's here that these decisions then facilitate this animal-to-animal-to-human transfer. And even more than that, journalists in Hong Kong broke the story that when Chinese doctors tried to raise the alarm on this virus, they were reprimanded by their own government, causing irreparable harm globally. So there is in this situation a lot of moral evil decision-making taking place. But of course, then the question for us is, why then? If there is a God, do we live in a world that has such moral and natural evil in it? Now, many secular-minded people would raise a famous version of this question. It's often called the logical problem of evil. It was first coined by Epicurus 300 years before the life of Jesus. And let me put it just simply. He asks, is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? Then he is powerless. Is he able to prevent evil, but not willing? Then he's wicked. Is he both willing and able? Why then is there evil? Maybe on a more popular level, one of the biggest rock bands in the last 20 years, the British outfit Muse, a favorite of mine, in one of their songs, Knights of Sidonia, they say, come ride with me through the veins of history and I will show you a God who falls asleep on the job. So this issue, this question is put out there and then from it, people make the decision to say, I'm going to adopt the atheist worldview. If this is true, there cannot be a God. Now, before we 
tackle this issue further, I just wanted to make a quick detour to something that I think is really important at this stage. See, often I think that we think if we jettison God, if we disbelieve in God, if we throw him out, that solves the issue, the problem of evil. Whereas I think it actually makes it more difficult. It raises more difficult issues. Let me give you just two of them for the sake of time. Firstly, on the natural evil side. You see, many secular-minded people globally at the moment have no hesitation in saying that the coronavirus is evil. It's, it's not good. It's unjust. But the question is, where do we get these ideas of evil and good for that matter in a godless universe. So the Oxford philosopher and author C.S. Lewis, he puts it like this. He says, when I was an atheist, my argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and unjust. But how did I get this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? As we saw in the previous session, nature is not moral. If, tragically, a lion were to maul a zookeeper, we would not prosecute that lion. He would not be charged with murder. And yet, immediately in our hearts, something raises up to say, this is evil, this is unjust. But the question is, where do we get those categories from? So, a, a tragic version of the story. In 1997, the 18-year-old American, Melissa Drexler, she attended a high school dance and somewhere during the evening, she went to the bathroom, she gave birth to a child, murdered that child and discarded of it and then proceeded to go back to the dance floor with her friends. Such a horrific moment. And in the aftermath of this, the atheist psychologist Steven Pinker wrote an article for the New York Times he titled it, Why They Kill Their Newborns. And he argued that we must simply accept the fact that natural selection endows and inherits us with these difficult reactions. It is, as he puts it, simply built into our biological design. I think Pinker is just being brutally honest with the implications of a truly atheistic or materialist worldview. We want to say that what Drexler did is evil, it's unjust. But in the atheist world, we, we have no way, no foundation of doing so. We have no way of looking at the evil we encounter out there and calling it truly evil. Secondly, on the moral side, it's the truth that if we abandon God, if we jettison God, we have no way of dealing with the evil we see out there but also we have no way, we are helpless to deal with the evil that we see in here, in our own lives, in our own hearts. So again, C.S. Lewis, he makes the point that all people, regardless of their belief or background, have this, this innate sense of right and wrong, of just and unjust. And yet, none of us actually live according to those standards. So he says, Human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of it. Secondly, that they do not, in fact, behave in that way. They know the law of nature and they break it. You see, we want to condemn evil actions and evil people, 
And yet we are confronted with this hidden and growing brokenness in our own hearts. So the author Christopher Browning, he writes a horrifyingly honest book called Ordinary Men of a battalion of about 500 soldiers who during the Second World War in just an 11-month period massacred more than 83,000 Jewish men, women, and children in brutal ways. But the truly horrifying part of this book is that he shows that these men were strikingly normal like you and I. And they simply gradually went further and further along a path that each of us know in our hearts so well. We wouldn't speak of this maybe in casual conversation over a couple of drinks, but we know that it's there. So I think the famous Russian author Alexander Solzhenitsyn, who survived Stalin's death camps, he puts it so well when he says, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from us. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. See, if we remove God, we don't remove the problem of evil. It stays exactly where it is. But when we remove God, we do remove any ultimate hope of dealing with the evil we see out there and dealing with the evil we find in here. So what then of the Christian worldview? How does Christianity grapple with this idea of God in a world so affected by evil and suffering? Firstly, I want to say that the Bible is the source that bluntly and passionately and regularly raises this problem. It's the people of God and the prophets alike who are usually saying, How long, O Lord? Why, O Lord? Books in the Bible, like Job and Ecclesiastes, almost solely deal with evil and death and the seeming randomness of life. So if I can just be cheeky for a moment... I think if atheists were to read the Bible, they would find their own objections very well articulated here. But then the Bible goes on, I think, to do something so incredible. It gives us both a more realistic and honest and a more hopeful view than you can find anywhere else in the world. So, Martin Niemöller, who survived the concentration camps of Nazi Germany, he says of the Bible, the word of God was simply everything to me, comfort and strength, guidance and hope, master of my days and companion of my nights, the bread which kept me from starvation and the water of life that refreshed my soul. So how does the Bible do this? Tim Keller says that there are two sets of teachings that we have to keep in tension. Now, of course, we can only scratch the surface of these today. But if we can accept and engage and live in the tension of these two sets of teachings in the Bible, we find such ultimate hope for the evil we see out there and the evil we encounter in here. So the first set of teachings that we need to keep in tension is the creation and fall and the renewal of all things. Creation and fall and the renewal of all things. 
In the opening chapters of the Bible, in Genesis 1 and 2, we see a world that God has created, placed human beings into, but that is devoid of this evil and suffering that we are faced with today. Meaning that the situation we are in, that we face every single day to this day, is not the way that things should be. Even if you were to die a peaceful death at the age of 90, that is not part of God's original design and intent for the flourishing of mankind. There is a a wrongness in death that all of us sense. We should rage against the dying of the light, as Dylan Thomas famously says. Why? Because in the next chapter, chapter 3 of Genesis, which is often called the fall of mankind, we see that this intuition that we have of the wrongness of death and evil and suffering comes from the fact, and it's, it's confirmed by this moment, that when mankind try to substitute, to replace God with ourselves, we want to be God, we want to be the captains of our own soul, we want to worship and rule ourselves at the center of the universe. When we do that and perpetuate that, it's not just that in that moment, The relationship of mankind was fractured with God, but all relationships to all things was fractured to each other, to our own emotions, even nature itself. So we see here in the folly and the arrogance of mankind that the heart of man and even nature itself has fallen to a lower state. The world is broken, the Bible says. Now, this actually gives us an incredibly nuanced view and perspective then on all the different origins and reasons for evil and suffering. You see, most people prefer that we just live in a way that says, you know, you get what you deserve. But the Bible, for instance, in a book like Job, makes the case, you know, Job suffers and his self-righteous friends want to solve the problem of his suffering. And in the end, they say the reason is, It's his own fault. It's his own sin and wrongdoing. But at the end of the book, God rejects and he expresses anger at their small-mindedness. Similarly, the historian Luke, when he gives us an account of the life of Jesus, in chapter 13, he records a moment where people come and ask Jesus of a group of people that had been killed. And they ask him, what was the specific sins that, that made them deserve this death? But Jesus rejects their premise. And in fact, he adds to his illustration, he brings in a moment of natural evil. He speaks of a, of a time, a moment where a tower tragically crushed a bunch of bystanders. And he says, instead of thinking that some specific wrongdoing or sin caused this, he makes the case that all people, all of us, are equally fractured in our relationship to God. There is equal perpetuation in our own hearts with regard to rebellion and death and suffering and choosing and experiencing evil. So the Bible says that the origins and the reasons for evil and suffering, it's multifaceted and the world is too deeply fallen. It's too deeply broken to try and divide the world into neat little categories of Good people who deserve good things and bad people who deserve bad things. But now the tension, because the Bible says, yes, the world is broken, but that is not the final word. The Bible says that at the end, 
through Jesus, God has started, but that he will decisively deal with evil and suffering. And then he will renew, restore all things. God is not simply going to console us and comfort us for the life that we have lost, but he is going to far and above. He is going to glorify the life that we used to have in a new existence. It's going to be a glorious, perfect, unimaginably rich life in a renewed material world. So the analytic philosopher Peter van Inwagen says, at some point for all eternity, there will be no more unmerited suffering. This present darkness, the age of evil, will eventually be remembered as a brief flicker at the beginning of human history. Every evil done by the wicked to the innocent will have been avenged and every tear will have been wiped away. This is what Tolkien refers to in his final book in the Lord of the Rings trilogy when he says everything sad is coming untrue. So in the Bible, in the book of Romans chapter 8, it says that God will work all things to the good of those who love him. But in honesty, we only see glimpses of this in this life. And the reason is we don't have the full picture. So we have to trust that God is working. He is bringing about on a universal scale in Jesus a much more glorious conclusion that we could ever have imagined that will fully justify all the evil and suffering that has come before it. Now, of course, we can raise the objection and say, no, if God is all powerful and all good, there is no way that he would endure, that he would allow any suffering for any greater outcome at the end. But this makes a massive assumption up front that if I think that evil is pointless, it must be pointless. If I, from my very limited perspective, cannot see a reason why God would allow evil and suffering for a greater good at the end, there must be no reason. I would submit to us that I think this is a colossal and arrogant overstatement of our own cognitive faculties. If I cannot see the full picture and strategy and plan in the whole universe, there must be none. No, I would say that the Bible says yes, the world is broken. The hearts of man and nature is not as it should be. But in Jesus, God has begun and he will redeem all things and deal with evil. So that's the first tension. The second set of teachings that we need to keep in tension is the fact that God is the sovereign and the suffering God. You see, the Bible teaches that God is all-powerful and all-good. And this doctrine of His sovereignty is often called compatibilism. It's compatible that God is in full control of the scope of history, and yet that mankind makes absolutely free will choices. The two are compatible. Now, we might try and figure that out by saying, well, Maybe it's, you know, 50% God and 50% man or 80-20. But the Bible just states it as a fact that God is 100% control, in control of the arrow of history. And within it, there are human beings who are fully responsible for their own choices. Now, of course, this is impossible for us to fully square out in our minds. 
But God works through our choices, not in spite of them or around them. We always do exactly what we want to do. And God always works things out in an ultimate sense through our choices. Now, the Bible gives us a couple of glimpses maybe into moments like this. For instance, in Genesis 50 verse 20, Joseph explains how his brother's evil and self-chosen choices to sell him into slavery is used by God to bring about a greater good. He says, you planned evil against me, but God planned it for good to bring about the present result, the survival of many people. Or Ephesians 1 verse 11, that simply says that all things are according to the plan of the one who works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. God is fully sovereign. He's all powerful and all good. But now, once again, the tension that we embrace in the Bible. Yes, God is sovereign over evil and suffering, and yet he has subjected himself in Jesus to evil and suffering. Yes, he is the Lord of history, but he is also the one who steps into history in the cross of Jesus and takes our evil and suffering and death and brokenness upon himself. So I love how the French theologian Henry Blocher says, we have no other position than at the foot of the cross. After we have been there, we are given the answer of the wisdom of God. This answer consoles us and summons us. It allows us to wait for the coming of the crucified conqueror. He will wipe away the tears from every face soon. You know, these ideas of creation and fall and of God being sovereign and suffering, they, they can feel so abstract. But here at the centerpiece of Christianity, what I think is the center point of history, at the cross the death and resurrection of Jesus. We see these themes rushing together in practical, in tangible, in such vivid ways. That's why Philippians, a book in the Bible, chapter two, verse six says, of Jesus who existing in the form of God did not consider equality with God as something to be exploited. Instead, he emptied himself by assuming the form of a servant, taking on the likeness of humanity. And when he had come as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. In closing, there's this powerful moment in the movie, The Passion of the Christ, where Jesus, exhausted and broken, is lying on the floor. He's being kicked and, and cursed out by the guards. And a woman with an outstretched arm cries out, someone stop this. And here, the great twist in history is that someone, namely Jesus, was doing something unspeakably great that required it not to be stopped. You see, God takes evil and suffering so seriously that he is willing to take it upon himself. God sees the evil that we see out there and that we see an encounter in our own hearts. And he steps into history in Christ to take it upon himself, to pay for our sin and death and brokenness and rebellion. He calls us to find renewal in 
Jesus. And he promises that what has been started in Christ at the end will be brought to fulfillment. That evil and suffering will be finally dealt with. I think Charles Spurgeon absolutely nails it when he says God is too good to be unkind and he's too wise to be mistaken. And when we cannot trace his hand, figure it out, we must trust his heart. You know, when my wife walked down the aisle many years ago, it was at our wedding day, not an invitation to figure out, to solve the problem that we call marriage. No, it was an invitation into a trust relationship. And in the same way, here at the cross of Jesus, at the center of Christianity, where creation fall, where the renewal of all things, where the suffering and the sovereignty of God, where all these things come together, it is not an invitation to solve the problem of evil and suffering in God, but it is an invitation into a trust relationship, a relationship of dependence. Because yes, none of us, I cannot fully and finally understand an all-powerful and all-good God. But here in Jesus at the cross, I see that I can trust Him. I can know Him. I can follow Him. So will you join us in session number three as we are going to look at purpose and hope? What is the foundation of my life in a moment where the whole world has been shaken as it is now? I hope to see you there.